Consensus Network. The ultimate charitable act is to give all of your wealth to people that share your values forever. And the way to do that is to die with your Bitcoin keys. But at some point, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, you came into this world, you're a very inefficient energy container, (laughs) and then eventually you will leave and uh, you'll go from being pure energy to being materialized energy to being pure energy again. There is no such thing as a free lunch. Robert Heinlein's famous phrase, from the moon is a harsh mistress. Is, is, Is there such a thing as a second breakfast though? (laughs) there's no second breakfast no second breakfast Welcome back to the Freedom Footprint Show, a Bitcoin philosophy show with Knut Svanholm and me, Luke the Pseudofin. Today, we have a very special episode. We host Michael Saylor, executive chairman of MicroStrategy and Bitcoin visionary, who otherwise needs no introduction. This was extra special for us because it was our first in-person episode recorded at BTC Prague. It was a fantastic conversation exploring topics such as Bitcoin's impact on violence, the meaning of maximalism, and how Bitcoin is the ultimate sacrificial act. But before we dive into all this, we'd like to quickly remind you that the best way to support the show is to send us a boost or stream us some sats using a value-for-value podcasting app such as Fountain. If you're listening to this show as a podcast, check out Fountain if you haven't already. You can earn sats from listening to podcasts, and you can support your favorite shows through value-for-value. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like, Subscribe to the channel and turn on notifications so you never miss a weekly episode. And finally, we want to thank our sponsors, Orange Pill App, Wasabi Wallet, and BitcoinBook.shop. All their information is in the description. We'll be talking a little bit more about them later. And now, without further ado, Michael Saylor on the Freedom Footprint Show. All right, Mr. Michael Saylor, welcome to the Freedom Footprint Show. Awesome. (laughs) Absolutely awesome. How are you enjoying Prague so far? Prague's a beautiful city. It seems like it's uh, the birthplace of a lot of great Bitcoiners and Bitcoin ideas. I've um, I've appreciated uh, seeing the the city. The architecture is beautiful. The culture is lovely. The uh, you know the history is extraordinary. The people are vibrant. Uh, the Bitcoin community here is also vibrant and. I met a lot of OG Bitcoiners, <laughs> without which I wouldn't be here. They were uh, fighting the good fight many, many years before I really discovered Bitcoin. So it's it's neat to meet them and uh, and talk to them. And of course, this conference is pretty extraordinary. It's just a great groundswell of energy. Really good orange passion everywhere. Yeah. There's a high signal to noise ratio. I think so. Yeah, yeah. So uh, my my first question is a question that uh, my son wanted to ask you. He's okay. twelve years old, and he wanted to ask you if there's a if there's a specific memory from your childhood, anything that made you into what you are today, like the person you are today. Is there is there something that comes to mind? Um, 
You know, I, I fell in love with uh, science fiction when I was young, and I started reading a lot of science fiction books. And, and uh, one of the great science fiction authors of the 20th century is Robert Heinlein, who's also a libertarian. And Heinlein wrote about um, people's need for freedom to escape authoritarian oppression. He appreciated sound money. Yeah. He, uh, you know, the theme of his books oftentimes is, is it's just too crowded on this planet. We have to get off this planet, <laughs> right? It's like go west, young man, or go to space, yeah. you know? And um, so I thought his books had a big impact. And he had one book called Have Spacesuit, Will Travel. And it's about this uh, this smart high school senior who who wins a competition, gets a spacesuit that's broken, fix up the space suit, takes it out in his backyard, and he's, uh, he's talking to outer space, and all of a sudden, outer space starts talking back to him, and aliens land, and they kidnap him, and they take him gallivanting on this uh, adventure around the universe, and he discovers great new civilizations and some authoritarian bug-eyed monsters, and at some point, the monsters decide to contem uh, condemn the entire world and destroy the human race and and the kid saves the human race you know, right. through his ingenuity <laughs> and uh after saving the human race and all of earth from the bug-eyed monsters he comes back and he is rewarded with a full tuition scholarship to mit <laughs> and it struck me, struck me that you know as you have the highest of aspirations eventually you'll get around to becoming an engineer and going to mit yeah. so i decided i would go to mit oh that's wonderful. So I went to MIT to study uh, <laughs> aerospace engineering and build spaceships and, and uh, you know, use, the, use technology to help the human race get off the planet and yeah, that's spread to the four corners of the universe. Funny you should say that, but like Starship Troopers is probably my favorite movie of all time. One of, it's right up there, like top five. And I know that that movie doesn't really represent Heinlein's book, but you can view it as sarcastic or as... Heinlein intended it. It's, there's, it's so layered and so so goofy at the same time. I think I think the book is a masterpiece. Uh, you know, the director of the movie says he never read the book. So, yeah, 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 so yeah. people that love the book kind of wince when they think about the yeah, movie. Yeah. The book is is a uh, is a detailed exploration of uh, you know political economy and humanity and what it means to be a citizen and and you know, what it means to be human. And, and uh, it's, you know, quite uh, a classic for people that like Heinlein. He wrote some good ones, I mean, uh, and that was one of them. I think they're all inspirational. They get you thinking about, about um, humanity and government and politics and life and, and self-reliance and responsibility. Yeah, and, and incentives, I guess, why, why people do what they do. And so, so that's another thing I wanted to talk to you about. Like, we, you, you talk a lot about Bitcoin and energy and uh, the hash power and stuff in mining, but like the, the the way I the way I see it, there's there's a human behind every decision in Bitcoin, and there's everything starts with a human, and the computer is just a fancy abacus helping the human do the calculations. So, like, what is the role of human action in uh, you know, uh, 
in relation to energy in, in mining, for instance, or in, in Bitcoin in general? Well, I think the Bitcoin system is a, the entire, the entire system is a delicate balance between the Bitcoin holders and, and, uh, the, the Bitcoin nodes and the Bitcoin miners and then all the Bitcoin applications and all the businesses and all the services that integrate into the ecosystem. So, so I, you know, I think the humans are important because they, um, they drive the innovation in the economy and they also drive the advocacy for the network and without the advocates, right, then, then we would be at the mercy of hostile politicians and hostile corporate actors and hostile competitors. But without the innovation, uh, we wouldn't have things like Cash App. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have the on-ramps for institutional investors. You wouldn't have the technology to give Bitcoin to billions and billions of people. You wouldn't have the ability to improve the products and the services in the world using Bitcoin. So, so we need humans to, to create Bitcoin products and services, uh, we need them uh, to improve the protocols, especially the layer two protocols. There's a lot of work at the layer twos. And of course, the layer three applications, there's a lot of work there. There's a lot of work to, to market, build, serve, you know, distribute the, that functionality everywhere. Um, ultimately, I, I still think it's a it's a balance it's a natural balance it's it's pretty important that bitcoin consists of gigawatts of energy we need we need elect, real raw analog energy to be uh, a basis of the network but it's also important that we have all of the millions of asic miners and the semiconductors and that hash wall and it's very important that we have a very distributed set of nodes for validating the system. And, uh, you know, Bitcoin is, a, in a way, it's a virus, and the virus spreads Mind and virus. reproduces yeah. through the people. So ultimately, the reason that if Bitcoin is going to last forever, then it's going to have to be passed from you to your children, to your children's children, to your children's yeah. children's children. And each generation that adopts Bitcoin has to, has to adopt not just the technology, but it has to adopt the ideology, right? At the point, because at the point that, you know, the future generation becomes corrupted and they forget the ideology of Bitcoin, then they will attempt to corrupt it one way or the other. Yeah. And uh, and that would be not good. So the the technology itself can't propagate itself for the next ten thousand years without mm. human engagement. But uh, isn't doesn't Bitcoin do that to people? Like because it's because it's costlier to cheat the system or to try to cheat the system than to follow the rules. Like isn't that like built into the thing? Or do you think it requires people to? act in a certain way or is the game theory just playing out there and like 
is it robust enough? Have we passed some sort of point where the point of no return where this thing exists now and we just have to adapt to it? I think Bitcoin is the most thermodynamically sound economic system the human race has ever come up with or yeah. encountered. So do I. <laughs> right? Either invented or discovered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the essence of thermodynamics includes includes this concept of conservation of energy. You know, all things considered, you know, the world works because gravity holds you down and it's a lot harder to jump off the ground and stay off the ground for long periods of time than it is for you to stand yeah. with your feet on the ground. So Bitcoin is grounded in that way and the the power of cryptography, right, makes it exponentially more difficult to, to break the rule yeah. or, or, or to corrupt the system than to enforce the rule. And, you know, the power of SHA-256 hashing makes it exponentially more expensive uh, to interrupt the network yeah. than, than to engage with the network, you know, the way it was built. And uh, because the protocol is conservative, it's exponentially harder for someone to store their money in a different asset or for a different asset to compete. Eventually, all the other assets go to zero against Bitcoin because they're not conservative. And so we can think of it as, yeah, it's game theory in the sense that it's human beings self-interested, rationally expressing their nature towards self-preservation it's yeah. like and but you could also think of it as just um as just conservative in a physical form because of all the monetary systems in the world it's the simplest most elegant one yeah. right you can you can enforce monetary system with a navy with an army with an air force with a police force you can have an army of stockbrokers. Yeah, that's another consensus algorithm. They're, they're all just <laughs> other ways to do it, but they're all much more labor-intensive, much more energy-intensive, much less efficient. And so ultimately, you know, the, the law of thermodynamics says, says, you know, the most energy-efficient thing, the, the lowest energy state is what's going to dominate people people will eventually migrate from uphill to downhill. Yeah. You know, yeah, things of course. will fall. So uh, there was a graph in your talk here uh, about an hour ago about the difficulty and how it has like grown like 50 trillion times or something since since inception. Yeah. It's it's pretty mind-blowing. So so it was a one. Yeah, yeah it was one. Yeah, yeah. It was a one. Yeah, even before yeah. that I would say it was zero that if you view Bitcoin as a new element on the periodic mm. table, it always existed. It's just that the hashing power was zero up until 2009, but it was always there. It's just waiting to be discovered. <laughs> Do you think there's something to that? Or like, <laughs> that's a weird question, I know, but. <laughs> I think, well, I think uh, it's the first time in the history of humanity that we discovered, right, that absolute scarcity or the or the the ability to manifest such a thing yeah. in humanity. So, uh, so what's the relationship between difficulty and costliness? 
are they the same thing? Is costliness the same thing as difficulty? Well, the cost, the cost is a, is a function of how much money, uh, commodity money you need in order to acquire the hash power to get a certain percentage of the network to generate, I guess, a certain amount of revenue. So as the silicon gets more efficient, then I guess the costliness would go less, but as the hash power increases, then you need more silicon. So, so I, I haven't yeah. calculated how much, but, but, but presumably, right? And also it's a function of, of the value of the Bitcoin at the time. It was a lot cheaper for Satoshi to mine the first million Bitcoin. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And now to mine a million Bitcoin would be pretty costly, I suppose. Pretty costly. But, but there, there, there is a relationship between the two. I mean, the, the costliness is sort of what secures the network in terms of why miners choose to to run their machines like the the the, the action that the human being takes behind the hash power is like what 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 relation does that have to to the energy itself well i mean the way i think I, I, i'm not quite sure what you mean by costliness but there's a cost to attack the network and the yeah. cost to attack the network keeps going up yeah right yeah there's a return on hashing yeah which varies from time to time depending upon the block reward the transaction fees and the hash rate etc i i think it's it's pretty clear that the the cost to attack the network has reached the point where where it's too high for any actor to attack it right there's 400x a hash means that you would need 20 five billion dollars worth of custom ASICs to get to half of the network, which means you would need $250 billion of ASICs in order to generate 90% of the network. But there aren't 250 mm. billion worth. So if you had 10 years and you could wait for and buy every ASIC for 10 years, in 10 years you would have the ability to grab nine out of 10 blocks or something. So, so, uh, that's kind of impossible, right? If you want to attack the network efficiently, it takes you a decade. If you want to attack the network tomorrow, you would have to grab every computer in the world, every CPU, every iPhone in the world, and then you would be running at a 2000 X inefficiency versus a Bitcoin ASIC. So that means that you would need all of the electricity in the world and yeah. all the computing power in the world, and you would only be a quarter of the hash rate. So, so you could win one out of every four blocks if you had yeah. all the electricity and all the computers in the world. So the costliness to attack the network right now is several Earths. Yeah. <laughs> right? If you had three Earths, you still couldn't stop it. You yeah. could simply attack it with yeah, three or You could do one double spend. <laughs> but if you roll the clock back to when there was one exahash, yeah. if you had maybe hijacked the entire Amazon computer network, then you might have you know, been able to interrupt the network in some way. But I, I think the, the genius of the Bitcoin network is that it's not secured by energy. It's secured by digital or not, not by power, but by digital power. Analog power could be measured in gigawatts. 
But digital power is going to be measured in exahash. And exahash is a specialty protocol. And that means that if you want to attack the network with commodity money, you need all the money in the world. If you want to attack it with commodity electricity, you need all the electricity in the world. And if you want to attack it with commodity compute CPUs, you need all the computers in the world. And if I give you all the money in the world, and then you buy all the electricity world and all the computers in the world, maybe you get 25% of the hash rate of the Bitcoin network, which means that one out of every four blocks you get to control, but the other blocks still go through. So, so I, I would say, you know, the, the genius of the network design is that after 10 to 12 years, the action of the miners and the investment that the miners have made in the ASIC hashing power has created a wall of encrypted energy around the network. And behind that wall, everyone is able to store their money, create their applications, right? Secure, secure their products and services and build that economy. So we're, we're building an economy in cyberspace secured by uh, a cryptographic wall or a, di- a wall of digital power that's, that's secure enough that there's no force on earth that can really break through that at this point. Yeah. Um, so I had a thought like a, a year back that I'm, I can't stop thinking about. And that is if, if you memorize your seed phrase, your 12 words, and you destroy every other location that your seed phrase exists in, then you effectively are your Bitcoins because the only place they exist in is your mind. Right. And then I, I, I expanded on that thought. And the, the, the more I think about it, uh, the realization is that this is true for every Bitcoin. Because if you're the only one with the information about how to unlock them, it doesn't matter if you memorize a seed phrase or if you know the location of an open dime or whatever it is, it's still all just keeping a secret. So do you think there's something to that, that all Bitcoins live inside the head of a person? Or what? Yeah, to, I mean, to the extent that Bitcoin is secured by a, a password or by a, by a secret of some yeah. sort, right? And there's like no other assets that can be stored that way. Well, the, the nuance is people sometimes write down their secrets. Yes, right? of course. So if the secrets are stored in your head, then yes. But if the secrets are stored, you know, on a computer or yeah, on, but a, even, on something else, then then the Bitcoin exists wherever the, the information is. Yeah, yeah. which means that an inanimate objects can hodl Bitcoin, I guess. A piece of paper with a seed phrase is... Is, is a hodler in a sense then. Or an AI program. Yeah. Or a computer program. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is, I mean, so, it's the first property, which is information. Yeah. And I, I think we've only begun to explore what that implies because it's so different. Um, and uh, to the point of, like I often think about like violence and um, people, people spread a lot of FUD about $5 or $10 wrench attacks. Well, it's about $21 wrench attacks now, I guess, mm-hmm. after the inflation. But uh, they're afraid that someone would come to their house and take people's Bitcoin. But the way I see it, it's like, uh, I can put a gun to your head and say, give me all your Bitcoins. 
but I can never truly know how much Bitcoins another person has. Like there's no way for me to know the exact amount. So it can give you a fraction of the Bitcoin. So, uh, and I think what people don't realize is they, they are being attacked with a $21 wrench at the moment and they're paying for the wrench via inflation of the cu currency. So, uh, so yeah, what, what, what's your stance on that? How does Bitcoin make violence so much less profitable that we are incentivized somehow to, to uh, interact peacefully rather than violently? I think Bitcoin is the first perfected digital property. And all the other property, all the other wealth we have in the world is uh, analog wealth. So all analog property can be confiscated, seized, either by violence or by corruption. So, the, so analog properties encourage corruption, they encourage violence, either state-sanctioned violence or criminal violence, and they encourage politics and legal manipulation to steal your property or confiscate it one way or the other. And that's been the case for all of human history. So to the extent that you convert property into a digital form, and that digital form can manifest itself on a hardware wallet or a seed phrase plate or in your head, however it's manifested, you now, you now have the ability to destroy the property by destroying the information. Yeah. Which you can't do with analog property. If you, if you own a vault of gold, yeah. in fact, you can't destroy it. So if you owned a building or a company or even a bunch of bonds, you know, to give you a claim on a government, you can't destroy them by destroying the information. Eventually, a custodian or a government can reclaim them. So in that sense, the human doesn't really have the power over their own property. They don't have the property right. They have a conditional property right based upon their political standing or their physical strength. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin gives the human being an unconditional property right because the power to, to destroy something is the ownership of the something. It's a line oh, yeah. from Dune, by the way, if you remember oh. Frank Herbert, where they oh, yeah. talk about the spice and they say oh, the yeah. power to destroy the spice is, is power over the spice. In this case, um, the power to destroy the property means you have an unfettered right to the property. The power to transport or convey the property is another right. All these other properties, you don't have the right to convey and you don't have the right, uh, you don't have the power to convey or the power to destroy. So I think Bitcoin is a breakthrough in those two ways. The third way it's a breakthrough is, is it's immortal property. So you can, in theory, accumulate a massive amount of property and find a way to convey it 10,000 years into the future. You can't do that with even a pyramid. You can't do it with a building. You can't do it with any stock or bond or piece of land. But, you know, you can entrust the Bitcoin to an AI program, put it on a satellite, maybe time lock it. Yeah. yeah. And it'll still be there. So I think the, the implication of that is that in a world of digital property, 
there's an in, there's a disincentive to violence and a disincentive to corruption for lots of reasons. Um, there's always an incentive to negotiation because you're uh, you know you're negotiating to get some instead of none. Yeah. If you don't know how much someone has, then that shifts the balance of power in favor of the property owner. Yeah. If you did know how, if I knew you had a hundred Bitcoin and I had a gun to your head, you know, we still end up with a, you know, uh, a game theory that suggests I'll get half, but not all. Because if I pull the trigger, I get none. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the game and theory so is 50%. And so if we split it 50-50, yeah. yeah. you might well give me half or give me a fraction. Yeah. If I'm not using a gun, but I'm just threatening a lawsuit, maybe I'll just take the 10%. Same thing. Now... <laughs> You can shift the balance of power on that because if I have a gun to your head, but you have the ability to to transfer the Bitcoin telepathically, or or you have a little device, a kill switch in your hand, and you can punch the button and transfer it to someone else, somewhere time else, it. time lock it. <laughs> it's like, okay, can I pull the trigger before you push the black switch? In that case, maybe I'd only just take ten percent. Yeah. So, right, so, I, so I think that there's technology that can be constructed that, that at this point will shift the balance of power away from the authoritarian with, with the physical power and put it in the hands of, um, of the person with the digital power. So it shifts it to the individual, basically, to the individual property owner. Well, to the corporation. Yeah. I so, mean, it, it could be to, to whatever entity. Yeah, yeah. But, basically, whichever entity has the property. For example, not just an individual. Let's say that I'm, um, I'm a country, and you're the country next door, and all my property is land and gold in my bank, and so you show up with tanks, and you roll over the border and murder all of us and take the land and the gold. So the country that's more violent gets the property of the country is less violent. Yeah. But if the country's 95% of the, the property of the country is in Bitcoin and you show up with tanks, the country can just say, well, we're just going to destroy the property or we're going to teleport it into outer space if you attack or we'll give you 5% of it. And so a country could do the same thing that a person could do. A company a company could too as well. If a company has a big building in the middle of a city and that's their property, then the city can claim it. But if the company's property is sitting in, in Bitcoin and they can move it to a different country or a different city, then the city can't claim it. So I think in all cases, all entities, whether they're individuals, families, companies, agencies, or countries, there's a, uh, there's a disincentive to physical violence and physical force and there's a benefit conveyed to that the the entity with the digital property and the digital capability and so that that was the word it it uh it encourages uh the migration of uh of your property and your wealth from the physical sphere to the digital sphere but is that true even for custodial uh you know if the company or the country uses a custodial solution because like doesn't it require like the board of a corporation or the parliament of government to do a, some sort of multi-sig solution because if it's custodial 
then it's you know not your keys, not your coins. Then that's that's some guy who is the the custodian. Like, I, I I don't think of it like that. I think that if you're Switzerland and uh, you have a uh, hundred billion in Bitcoin and the custodian is the Bank of Switzerland, and then if Germany attacks Switzerland, then Switzerland controls their Bitcoin and the custodian is Swiss, and they're better off to have Bitcoin. Right? I mean, this issue of what is a custodian is like, okay, well, if, you're, if you have a family and you have multi-sig and there's three people in the family, how is that different than you have a family bank that's the custodian oh, with well, the multi-sig, right? At the end of the day, you know, um, a city can have a city bank, you know, by the way, you know the name of the Rockefeller Bank. It was called National City Bank. And you know what the name of the bank is today? It's called Citibank. And it was a bank for a family. You know who was the CEO of National City Bank? John D. Rockefeller's brother, William Rockefeller, was the CEO. So there's a family bank. They didn't trust the other bankers. They had their own bank. Yeah. Eventually, it became Citibank. If the United States of America has a trillion dollars of Bitcoin in Citibank, when they get in a fight with the Russians, they're better off than if they don't. Let's reverse this around. If you're Russia and you have your gold and your money in a Swiss bank, yeah, then maybe the Swiss or the or if it's an American bank, maybe you get in a fight, they take it. But the problem wasn't trusting a custodian. The problem was trusting a custodian in the political jurisdiction of their enemy. Yeah, if their money was actually in a Russian bank. And of course, the other problem is their money was not a bearer instrument, right? If if their money was gold and it was in Moscow, then they wouldn't have had all their assets seized. If your money is debt, if it's French debt and you're going to fight with the French, yeah. and if the French debt is in a French bank and you're going to fight with the French, well, you've made a double error, right? You've, yeah, yeah. you've actually used credit as your money and you've custodied it with a, with a uh, custodian, a foreign custodian. So foreign money... It's credit in a foreign custodian is not a good thing, but if it's domestic money with a domestic custodian, the issue really is are the Russian people better off with the Bank of Russia than with Putin carrying it around all the money hardware device on his neck? It's like, <laughs> you know, like, I, 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 I don't think, I don't think, um, there's any black and white here. I think that an individual could decide to be their own custodian or could engage in multi-sig. A family could decide to be their own custodian or engage in multi-sig. A small company, a big company, a city, a state, a country, they could all make different decisions. And the decision is how will they custody their assets? And the answer is, it's, you don't really want the mayor of your city to have all your money no. and then leave. Like, <laughs> does the mayor get to keep all the money when they get unelected? Like, would you be more comfortable? I mean, the point really is no. And now, do you want to live in a city that doesn't own any Bitcoin? No. <laughs> Let's say you live in a country, they don't own any Bitcoin, but they have all their wealth and gold. And then, you're, and then the people living across the border decide to come and murder you all to take your gold. Were you better off that the country didn't own Bitcoin and they had gold and that way you didn't have this issue? I mean, yeah. the truth of the matter is you're better off to live in a country that has all their money in Bitcoin so that your enemy doesn't cross the border and murder you. Yeah. So when the country owns the Bitcoin, how will they custody the Bitcoin? 
Well, when you actually implement multi-sig with seven guardians, that's called a bank, a national bank, you know, and now you'll have this political process of who are the seven guardians you trust. Yeah. And what your jurisdictions are they in? Which like, is, uh, well, you know, families have politics, right? You have a yeah. distributed family and there's five brothers and there's, and the question is, which of the five brothers get to control the family money? If you don't have any money, you're lucky you don't have a problem. But when you actually right. inherit a lot of money from dad and his five brothers, are three of the five brothers the ones with keys? Or all? What if one of them's an alcoholic drug addict? Does that guy get the keys? <laughs> I would vouch for the older brother since like I'm a, the older brother. <laughs> you know, everybody ends up having to deal with the issue. Yeah. And, there's an, and, and I don't think there's one simple answer, which is why no. I don't preach one answer, because no. the answer is different for a city mm. than a company than a family, than an individual. No. Okay, like you're engaged to the woman. Do you share the keys? You're married to the woman. Do you share the keys? You have 16 kids. Which of your kids get the keys? Like, I mean, how long do you have to be married before you share the keys? Yeah. Right? I mean, so that these are all interesting questions and there's no answer. I don't opine on it. What I think is digital property is good. And digital digital property is better than physical property, and and Bitcoin solves half the problems in the world, but not the other half. Right? There's so, the other half are still there. You yeah, have yeah. to, you know, Bitcoin won't solve the problem of how you have a happy marriage or how no, no, you no. know or politics or how you deal with issues with your kids in school that teaches them stuff you don't no, want yeah. them to learn. All that stuff you still have to struggle with. What Bitcoin does is. It disincentivizes physical violence and uh, physical power um, in order to seize and confiscate physical assets. And it incentivizes cooperation. And it, uh, it, in, it allows you to construct elegant and beautiful structures in cyberspace that, that uh, will be valuable to the human race. So... I mean, every Bitcoiner faces these dilemmas, I guess, like how, how deep uh, am I going to nerd into this knowledge and like how, how, how secure do I want my Bitcoin to be? And am I going to use a custodian or like, and including corporations and nation states and whatever. And uh, we talked about time locking a bit, like there, there is an incentive to time lock in the sense like Bitcoin could be a, a retirement fund in that sense. So. When we see this playing out over, like, say, two generations from now, to what extent do you think this generation we're living in now will just, you know, <laughs> fuck this whole thing up and lose their bitcoins? How many, how many sats will there still be in circulation two generations down the line? Like, will will people take the required measures to 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 have an inheritance plan and to store their bitcoins in a secure way, like? But I, I know if it's divisible, it doesn't really matter because if it's divisible enough, the, the, the total amount doesn't really matter. It's the absolute scarcity that's the important part. I think, it's, I mean, uh, right now, uh, a fraction of people with Bitcoin do self-custody and, they, and they're fairly focused on that. And that's a commitment. The majority of people with Bitcoin don't. I think that uh, some Bitcoin has been lost. I, Bitcoin is naturally deflationary because over time there'll never be more, but there'll be a little bit less for reasons that's entropy in a yeah, way. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, 
there's a free market. There's going to be 100,000 different companies that will offer 100,000 different solutions. And I could think of uh, 100 different variations right now. And there isn't an answer because some people are untrustworthy. Like, for I've example, <laughs> you, you know, you, you yourself, at, for example, if you go out and you're drinking heavily on a Saturday night, some people shouldn't take their phones with them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You may be untrustworthy at certain times. And certainly if you get to a later stage in your life and you have Alzheimer's and you're the one that owns the keys, you will be not qualified to be your own custodian. So sometimes people are untrustworthy, sometimes counterparties, right? Yeah. Companies can be untrustworthy. Governments can be untrustworthy, right? So the promise of uh, Bitcoin is not a simple solution uh, that is easy to implement. The promise of Bitcoin is you have the option, right, to take custody or to change your custodians or to change your custodial protocols from time to time over the course of the next thousand years. And, yeah. and you don't have that option with a building. No. And you don't have that option with many other assets or property rights. So Bitcoin gives you the option. I think the custodial options keep getting better. I think they keep getting easier. I think there will be continual debate in the community about what's the right one. Yeah. I don't think there'll be a right one. I think that, uh, I think that there may be a right option for you at a point in your life. Like, let's say, let's say, uh, you're young and you're a single and you're very intellectually capable, right? You're in, and you need to be mobile and you're a refugee from yeah, a yeah. hostile regime. Well, I mean, that's sort of, it implies self custody or brain wallet. Yeah. But there'll be another stage in your life when you have 37, family members and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and then you would like to convey some of that Bitcoin to some of them on your deathbed, and you'll probably change your custodial structure at that point. Yeah. Or maybe you will, uh, you will decide you want to endow an institution or a corporation or, you know, there's, there's all sorts of different views. And there's also a point, you know, I said, well, you know, for the next 10 years, I'm, uh, I'm going to need to rely on an institution for some other reason. So, so, uh, I think everybody needs to have the option and they need to have lots of different options. The one thing you can expect is that the technology will improve. Like let's take multi-factor authentication, right? Yeah. The way that Apple computer does it between your iPhone and the iCloud has gotten to be pretty good. And a lot of people rely upon that. And if you consider how it worked a decade ago, it didn't work so well. No. So I think, I think you'll start to see Bitcoin and private key management built into all the big tech companies, all the big tech devices. You know, maybe it will, you know. You have a ring, maybe, maybe a ring. your ring will be yeah. one of the factors that you use, you know, maybe That's it'll be something else. It'll be like Power Rangers, like putting the rings together and unlocking the Bitcoin. <laughs> and 
humans are very ingenious. So the goal will be to come up with the thing that is that is best, but there won't be a best one, right? If we insisted on everyone do the most rigorous degree of self-custody, you wouldn't onboard a billion people in a year. Mm. So if you want to onboard billions and billions of people, you'll need easy on-ramps. And then over time, some people will want to be able to escalate up to greater degrees of self-sovereignty. Yeah. And when you get to the issues like communities and families and corporations and governments, now you enter into this, this question of, do I use something like Fetamance or do I use more sophisticated multi-signature or do I use other custodial solutions from third parties and who do you trust and not? And uh, that's fine, right? That's, that's the free market functioning. Yeah, yeah. That's what we want. And there'll be a very vibrant free market competition. And some people will try things and they'll overthink it and they'll lose the Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. Or the time lock thing. I'll time lock my Bitcoin and then, oops, I needed my Bitcoin and now I'm bankrupt, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. and my business is destroyed yeah. and the Bitcoin's still time locked. But mean, you know, at some point you can get too cute by half. And so ultimately, I think that uh, there is no right answer. And, uh, that's not the that's not the part of of property rights that Bitcoin makes simple. In theory, actually, Bitcoin makes that a bit more complicated. Yeah. If you buy a house, there's kind of one way to buy a house and hold a house, and it's all regulated. The government tells you how to do it. Yeah. But if you buy Bitcoin, there isn't one way to buy it and one way to hold it, and so that's indicative of the fact that we're earlier stages, and and also just it's technically much more functional. Today's show is brought to you by our sponsors. First up, Orange Pill App. Stack friends who stack sats, meet like-minded Bitcoiners near you, and help speed up hyper-Bitcoinization with Orange Pill App. Bitcoin isn't an online-only phenomenon, and Orange Pill App helps facilitate the social layer, connecting Bitcoiners in their local area. It maintains your privacy through the whole process, and since you have to pay to access the app, you know that everyone there cares about Bitcoin and is high signal. A great new feature is events. You can create events and meetups right from the Orange Pill app and help build your local community while maintaining the Bitcoin-only signal. Orange Pill app is available on iOS and Android. Download now. Next up, Wasabi Wallet, an open-source, non-custodial desktop wallet that is trustless, easy to use, and affordable. It has CoinJoin built in to facilitate your privacy. Every Bitcoin transaction leaves a clear footprint, but with Wasabi, you can make sure that others can't track your steps and threaten your sovereignty. Just send your coins to Wasabi Wallet, wait, and your coins will be private on the other end. It's open source, trustless by design, and non-custodial. You have full control over your keys. Check it out now at wasabiwallet.io. In your talk yesterday, you you your panel, you, you, you mentioned these kind of five types of investors. And going all the way up to the technocrat and the the maximalist, and I, I have a question about your view on on what the maximalist means, uh, in, in the sense of when someone becomes a maximalist and understands the proposition of Bitcoin. Okay, that's that's an idea that's changed in their head. So, what do you see as the result of people adopting maximalism? The change in people. 
Well, to, just to review that quickly, a Bitcoin investor is someone that believes it's an asset and they may either buy it and go long or they may go short, they may trade it. It's just a, it's, it's a, an investment idea that sometimes is good and sometimes bad. And that's kind of like you looking at a retail company and saying the stock is undervalued, I'm going to buy it. The stock is overvalued, I'm going to sell it. You're just an investor. And you don't have a particular love or long-term opinion. There are plenty of investors that just trade things. They're traders. A technocrat is someone that believes that that, uh, that investment is inevitable. Like Facebook will have 2 billion users one day. Or Microsoft is going to dominate business software for a long time. Or Apple is going to deploy billions and billions of mobile devices, and they've got this incredible monopoly deadlock. So technocrats tend to, te they tend to say, I'm just buying it and holding it forever. I'm not going to trade it. It will never be overvalued, right? It's, you, you have basically the lock on all mobile devices for the human race forever, long-term. A maximalist is someone that looks at the investment and says, well, not only is it a dominant network and inevitable and, a, and a, in essence, a digital monopoly or a monopoly of sorts, but it's also an ethical imperative. It's, a, it's good for the human race that this is happening, right? Um, you can be a technocrat and believe that something is inevitable, but then be ambivalent about whether it's good for the human race, right? Maybe it is for some people, but maybe it's used as an instrument of authority for other people, and so you're not quite sure. Um, a person that's a electricity maximalist believes that electricity is good for the human race, saves lives, kids don't die so soon, right? A fire maximalist believes that fire is good for the human race. <laughs> There are Tesla maximists that actually are so fanatic fanboys about Tesla that, they, you know, it's like Tesla at all costs, right? I mean, not so many, but there are some, and, and they are very hardcore. Um, so Bitcoin maximalist is a Bitcoin investor that believes it's not just a digital monetary network that's going to win because it's overwhelmingly powerful, but also that it's a utilitarian entitlement. It's an instrument of economic empowerment for 8 billion people. And everybody has an opportunity for property rights and freedom and sovereignty because of Bitcoin, all they need is a $50 Android phone and they have that opportunity. And the, the reason that it's, um, it's a ethical entitlement or an ethical, um, imperative versus simply, uh, a technocratic likelihood is because there's no company behind Bitcoin. The thing that actually, the corrupting attack surface for technologies is when a company controls the technology because the company has a headquarters and the company has officers and the officers can be subpoenaed, right? And so the thing that, that is special about Bitcoin is it's not a security, it's a commodity. And by not being a security, it means there is no controlling set of officers that can be corrupted. And ultimately, anything that's controlled by people will be corrupted. It's, you know, that's, it's inevitable. If you're not corrupted politically in the near term, you'll be corrupted by aging. Eventually, you will die. 
and someone will inherit and they will inherit yeah. and you're and can you promise me your grandchildren's grandchildren will be just as virtuous as you are and the and the answer is no if you listen study the history of the roman empire you find yeah. that there's always a bad emperor and sometimes there's a string of bad emperors and the greatest em emperor marcus aurelius was succeeded by his son who was an awful emperor yeah, yeah. um so the implication here is uh, of maximalism is that as, as people get educated on Bitcoin, once they understand it's a commodity, not a security, and once they understand that it's an open permissionless network that offers property rights, and once they understand that digital property rights are really the only property rights that you can protect as the individual against the overwhelming force of the collective, digital property is in essence the only property you can take with you to the grave. If I gave you a billion dollars and you wanted to dispose of it in any particular way, or if you wanted to give it as a gift to the other people that have the same values you have, the only way you can do this with Bitcoin, the only way, there is no other way, right? A billion dollars of any other sort of property I can take from you either in your death or in your incarceration or using a political process. But I mean, the, the ultimate charitable act is to give all of your wealth to people that share your values forever. And the way to do that is to die with your Bitcoin keys. It's a do what, yeah. you know, if you have all your Bitcoin and you take them to the grave, right? You, you could say, oh, they lost their Bitcoin. They didn't lose their Bitcoin. They contributed their Bitcoin or they contributed their economic energy to everyone else on the journey with them. It's, it's the ultimate selfless act. Yeah. yeah. It's much more selfless than to say, give your Bitcoin to a charity. Yeah. Or give your Bitcoin to your own charity or give your Bitcoin to your family. Mm. Right. I mean, when you actually accumulate this wealth and then die with the keys, you have pro rata enriched everyone else who's lived a virtuous existence that shared your values. And so there could be no more charitable act, right? In fact, Bitcoin, it, de it dematerializes money. It dematerializes property. It dematerializes charity. Like you don't need a charitable foundation. You don't need a 501c3. You don't need the Gates Foundation. You don't need all of these. You don't need the church, right? All of these institutions that are nonprofit institutions that purport to do good for the world, ultimately they end up scraping off some percentage of the money they raise to pay, and they're oftentimes corrupted. Like there are things the Rockefeller Foundation does today that Rockefeller wouldn't have actually endorsed when he was alive. And then people blame him for the things that happened a mm -hmm. hundred years after he died. The Hughes Foundation exists, Howard Hughes is gone. In a hundred more years, the Hughes Foundation will do things that maybe he would or would not have agreed with. And even if you're the perfect God King and you actually know what's good or bad while you're living, mm -hmm. right? Show me that person. Like that's, <laughs> that's hard. Um, you can't guarantee it for the next hundred years or a thousand years, but let's actually, let's actually think about the reality, the reality is every human being is imperfect. Bitcoin is a perfect machine made of imperfect parts. The Bitcoin ecosystem is a perfect ecosystem economy made of imperfect actors. 
the theory of Austrian economics, free markets are, are the optimal economy made of imperfect economic actors that are messing up all the time. So you're a human being. You don't actually know what's, what's right. You think you know what's right, but you have imperfect knowledge. And so if I give you the money and say, give it away in the right way, you'll make mistakes. No. So actually, what's, what is the economic solution to do the most good with your money? And in the free market, it's let the free market flourish and let competition flourish to grow the economy the fastest. But in the charitable market, the answer is just destroy your Bitcoin keys. Because if you just destroy your Bitcoin keys, you have gifted your money to the virtuous. And the way that they get funded is they have to be virtuous. And only the virtuous will, can, can ever benefit from your charity, right? You can never benefit the vice. So is that what Satoshi did? Yes. And uh, that's, that's, yeah. that's exactly what Satoshi did. Satoshi set the ultimate example by, by in essence, burning that 1 million Bitcoin mm. and gifting it to the Bitcoin ecosystem in perpetuity for the next 100,000 years. Everyone, wow. people that are not born, people that are going to be the children of the children of the children yet unborn will benefit from the charity of Satoshi, but only to the extent that they deserve to benefit. That's so fascinating. Like, but, and, but, and you didn't need any people to no. do it. <laughs> you didn't need a government 501c3 to no. do it. And there is no grant review no. process, <laughs> right? I mean, that, that is the ultra, ultimate natural act of charity. Just like Bitcoin yeah. is the ultimate natural economy. Right? Anarchy, yeah. right? Rules without rulers, subject to the force of nature, ultimately fair, fair to everybody. Everybody on earth is subject to gravity. No one ducks it. Everyone is subject to the passage of time. Nobody gets out alive. Everyone gets to decide how they'll use gravity and use time, right? No, no free lunch, right? Tanstoffel, the there is no such thing as a free lunch. Robert Heinlein's yeah, famous yeah. phrase, from the moon is a harsh mistress. Is, is, is there such a thing as a second breakfast, though? <laughs> <laughs> There's no second breakfast. No second right? breakfast. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, um, the Hobbit. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. So if if Satoshi's coins, like these are these are all assumptions. They're they're plausible, but if Satoshi's coins should start to move one day, and it turns out. Satoshi wasn't this altruistic messianic figure. It's just a guy, a very, very, uh, a very good hodler that suddenly decides to move his coins or that the, the, uh, private keys are hacked. Someone finds the keys to Satoshi's coins and they start moving. What happens to Bitcoin at that point, in your opinion? It's like a, it's a short term negative. But long term, it doesn't matter. Bitcoin is a perfect system from imperfect components. Yeah. If people do imperfect things, even yeah. up to including an, an imperfection in the keys, that's not what matters. What matters is the protocol. You can audit the yeah. protocol. Eventually, like for example, people take their Bitcoin and they loan it to FTX and FTX rehypothecates it and then loses it and they panic sell the Bitcoin. And in the near term, it's, yeah. 
In the near current term, it drives the Bitcoin price down and the person that was the imperfect hodler made a mistake and they, they actually kind of, what is the word? They created a nuisance for the rest of us through making an unwise custodial decision. But ultimately, the market resolves it. Someone bought that Bitcoin and that someone probably won't loan it to one of the exchanges that rehypothecates it and Bitcoin, you know, uh, resets and rebuilds from there. So what does nature do when you set a forest fire? The forest burns down. Yeah. A few years go by, nature rebuilds itself. Yeah. That's kind of the way it works right there. Yeah. I saw a forest like that in Australia not long back. And it's, it's, it's mind blowing how fast they, like the forest fire was like, what, four or five years ago. And the forest is just back <laughs> because it's built to resist that over 2022, time. 2022, we saw a lot of crypto fire. Yeah. 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 And the SSE clamping down on, on Coinbase and, uh, and Binance and all this stuff now and FTX falling. Could you call that a shitcoin purge? Like, is that what's happening? Yeah, it's a rationalization of the industry. It's a, it's a mm. bunch of irrational structures collapsing. They say don't build a house in a floodplain. Yeah. People go and they build a house in a floodplain anyway. It rains, there's a flood, the houses get swept away. Yeah. They say don't build buildings on sand. People build on sand. The sand sinks, the building collapses, it gets taken away over the course of a hundred years time is a volatility machine it's going to shake apart irrational structures terra luna was irrational ftx was irrational celsius BlockFi, they're all irrational people build a you know they build poorly engineered buildings or bridges you know you build a bridge and the natural frequency of the bridge is equal to the frequency of the wind and the bridge shakes itself apart yeah. Everybody looks at that and says, well, we probably don't want to do that again. <laughs> and so, yeah, they well, all, the problem with all these systems is their natural frequency is too short. Yeah. Right? They're, they're poorly engineered. For example, the natural frequency of Bitcoin it's like, is, is somewhere between 8 and 16 years. Somewhere 8 to 16 years after the entire Bitcoin market crashes, the security starts to bleed off. Like, like people, people bought billions of dollars of Bitcoin mining equipment in the year 2020 mm -hmm. and a Bitcoin went to a dollar, that equipment would still be running and it would still be operational till about 2030. And what would happen is the price, uh, the price of Bitcoin ASIC mining chips would just get reduced, right? For a Bitmain was selling them for $9,000 a machine and then $1,500 yeah, yeah. a machine. And they will lower the price and run it at a variable margin of 1% and they will sell you these chips. Like what's a 386 chip cost or a 486 yeah, yeah, chip? Yeah. Nothing, a dollar. Yeah, yeah. So there is a bunch of inertia in the system such that the hash rate of Bitcoin is not going from 400 exahash to 4 exahash overnight just if, because the price crashes. No, no. Bitcoin has a very long natural frequency in the security of the network because the network is secured by energy and hash rate and custom silicon. Now let's take uh, Terra Luna or FTT. 
there was then the the security was based on staked tokens, and you could remove the token in anywhere from one to thirty days. If the price so, yeah, crashes, yeah. so it's built in a swamp. Then ninety five percent of the tokens get withdrawn and converted, and pretty soon there is no security. Right? It's like they built on a sinking sand no, yeah. swamp, and uh, the thing was going to shake itself apart. So, and if you were an engineer, you would have looked at it and said. This is just poorly engineered system. There's, so it's not just that the natural frequency is, is high, but the other problem is like Bitcoin is made of, of billions of dollars of crypto steel. And these other things were made of a few hundred dollars of like drywall paper. Yeah. They're paper structures. Yeah. Yeah. And the guys that made the paper houses said, Bitcoin is too expensive. Bitcoin, you remember the it's yeah, yeah, energy yeah, yeah. intensive? Yeah, yeah. Well, All these narratives. You know, yeah. and, and it uses ASICs. Well, ASICs and energy is the equivalent of using money and concrete and steel to build a building. And if you're an eighth grader, you would build your building out of car. You know, you ever see eighth graders with their little uh, toy Corvettes? And they build them from cardboard. Yeah, yeah. And they're much cheaper. Yeah. It's like I have a cardboard <laughs> car, <Right. laughs> and I use poster board in order to create my own airplane. <laughs> and you're right. If you're living in an imaginary world and you're imagining it's going, I have an imaginary cardboard gun, <laughs> and you have a really expensive gun, but my cardboard gun is much cheaper. I'm going to give cardboard <laughs> guns to all my friends. <laughs> And we're going to play Cowboys in India with cardboard guns. Mm -hmm. And it's fine as long as you're playing games in yeah, imaginary yeah. Yeah, cafeteria. Yeah. But when you go into the real world, your cardboard guns don't work. And your cardboard cars and planes yeah, don't yeah. fly and drive. And when it rains, the cardboard gets soggy. It all falls apart. <laughs> and you cut the hole and soaked in the rain. Uh, you know? And your parents look at you like, what the heck were you thinking? <laughs> It's like, it's not a tank. Uh, that's a great analogy. You don't analogy. fight a war with it. Like, and that's, that's the difference between Bitcoin and crypto. And, you know, we'll live to just see yeah. all the crypto people, see all their so, cardboard toys just fall apart. So, but, you know, you can't tell the kids that while they're playing with those cardboard <laughs> toys because they're just so much in love with them. The, yeah. And they can't afford a real plane. Yeah. And they can't afford a real car. So if the best you can have is cardboard imaginary toys, then that's what you give yourself. Yeah. So um, if you've been to Bitcoin for a while, you know that these things have played out before. Like there was a small, well, there was an altcoin boom in 2014. There was a big altcoin boom or, or all the forks and stuff of Bitcoin and, and all the ICOs and stuff that was in 2017. And then it crashed again. And Many of us thought that after 2017, these things would be way harder to pull off these scams. Like, but then, then you have 2021 and, and now you have all these FTX and Luna and all of what that is. So it feels like these, these things come in waves and there's always a, another idiot to fool into, into playing these games. So, so how do you th see that playing out? Will there be more waves of shit coiner? Will it be harder over time? Like, how do you see that? playing out well i think i think the first 14 years or so you probably had two or three waves of entrepreneur 
creating all these, you know, crazy crypto tokens. Yeah. And, and, um, we're going through a massive rationalization here. What's different each time is that Bitcoin is like an order of magnitude bigger each time. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so Bitcoin now is a $500 billion asset. And so this wave was big enough that it attracted the attention of all the regulators and, and adults. So this brought adult supervision. I mean, they took it more seriously. I think yeah. that in 2016, it was like the kids are playing with their things. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, I, I, think, I think the SEC and the CFTC and the big uh, nation states kind of thought it was more like the teenagers, you know, nah. having a food fight in the cafeteria <laughs> and they said, kids, stop, stop it. And then they went back to focus on other things. But this time around, I think when the entire crypto ecosystem got more than a trillion dollars, they started saying, okay, well, then they said, well, sort of stop it. But it really wasn't until the FTX meltdown where they said, okay, well, now we have to pay attention. So now I think what you're going to see is that um, they're really going to settle the matter of no digital securities or no unregistered securities. Mm -hmm. and, and so the crypto exchanges, the cryptocurrencies, and, and the form of stable coins. When I say cryptocurrency, yeah, I mean yeah. stable yeah. coin, I don't mean Bitcoin. So the crypto securities, the cryptocurrencies, the crypto exchanges, the crypto tokens, right now they're all going to be regulated and probably mostly regulated out if... At some point, there may be a political jurisdiction that offers a, a legitimate route to creating registered instruments. I don't see it right now, but two, three, four years out, maybe someone will offer it. But um, the next wave of, you know, of craziness, shitcoiner type behavior, it won't be individuals. It will be. Um, it will more likely be nation states that will play with the game. Maybe megacorps or nation states, but I would almost believe the nation states. For example, I think that all of the, you know, all of the current crypto tokens probably go away or go to zero. And you've got Bitcoin and, you know, all the little Bitcoin forks will go to less than 1% or 0.1% mm. and they'll die off. And so we'll come out of this and we'll have Bitcoin and not much else. Then there'll be some maneuvering to create, you know, uh, a bank issued digital currency that'll have some mixture of control and availability. And there'll be a lot of jostling back and forth. But the next interesting experiment would be Canada coin or China coin. Yeah. And so, for example, if I ran China, maybe I would say it's illegal to mine Bitcoin in China, but it's, but we're going to fork Bitcoin and it's legal to mine the Bitcoin fork called China coin and it's legal and there's no tax or there's mm, no yeah. inheritance tax on China coin and you can trade China coin. And so maybe a nation state will create their own China coin because that would, uh, that would be kind of like I'm creating my own form of digital property, but just for China. Mm -hmm. And then maybe there'll be Canada coin. You know, because Canada came up with this tax on Bitcoin mining in Canada yeah. and they go back and forth. So, you know how, um, you know how with debt, um, like New York City debt or, or New York State debt doesn't have any New York City tax. 
So they'll issue municipal bonds and they'll mm. give you a tax advantage on it in order to get you to buy their credit. So I can imagine a state or a nation maybe uh, trying to launch their own form of a Bitcoin fork, so right? Co copy it. And, you know, a, a CBDC or, an, or a digital currency is kind of like a fork of the stable coins. Yeah. Like they're, they're going to want, they're going to want to have their own tether, like, you know, yeah, yeah, digital CNY and digital dollar, but it'll be, the issue will be which custodian controls it. And it, it makes sense they'll do that. They'll just fight over whether JP Morgan gets to issue it or whether a nation issues it. Mm -hmm. And that's the currency. But the digital property idea is a good idea. Property is, is better than currency. Property will go up mm -hmm. 7 to 14% a year. So maybe someone, you know, will come up with a Russia coin, a China coin, a Canada coin, a, a USA coin, and it'll be not a global money, but it will be a national and nation state money. Because, you know, there, there is property in Italy that you can't leave Italy with. <laughs> you know, there is property in China buildings, property, and you can own it and the Chinese government will tax it and you can't take your property with you to the U.S. So once they get the idea of digital property, someone may decide, well, maybe we should just have a digital property of France coin. And so you'll see this range of new coins, but, but what'll happen is if they implement them perfectly as a fork of Bitcoin, then you launch them by giving preferential tax treatment or preferential mining treatment or preferential mm. trading treatment. Or like you could make France coin um, legal tender in France, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. like you could do that if you, if you launch the network perfectly as a fork yeah. and then you pushed it, well, it would last as long as France lasts. Like that, I mean, it won't last so 10,000 years. So but, not as long as Bitcoin then. <laughs> But you could think of it as, think of a, a nation, national currency that lasts as long as the nation state lasts mm -hmm. and think of a national property. Your property in Paris will be valuable as long as there's Paris, right? Yeah. I would bet on Bitcoin longer than Parisian property, but you get where, I, where I'm going with yeah. it. So if you implemented it perfectly, you could create a Canada coin or a France coin it wouldn't be as valuable as Bitcoin because it's not global. It's not the dominant network. Just like I would rather own, I would rather own $10 million of Bitcoin right now than a $10 million building in New York City right now, right? Because it's the thing in New York is impaired, right? $10 million worth of something in Paris is impaired. So Bitcoin will be the apex, but someone may try to create another kind of digital property and then I think the issue, then we'll get into this issue of shit coinery, which yeah, is, yeah. which is you had the, the Bitcoin forks that are just inferior because, you know, the block size is twice as much, but then you'll have the really grotesque monstrosity forks. They're inferior because they're proof of stake, you know, yeah, yeah. with all sorts of yo-yo, you know, protocol adjustments in them and roadmaps. So probably what would happen is as soon as they come up with China coin, they'll also start to censor China coin transactions. And then they'll yeah. start to put some other bell and whistle and yeah. then they'll screw up the security of it or, or they'll impair it further. Just like 
if I own a building in, uh, in a city and then the mayor of the city passed a law rent controlling the building and saying that you're not allowed to use the building for commercial purposes, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like yeah, they yeah. can't help, but first they but, create the property and then they impair the property. So there'll be all of these kind of like coin wars in the next, you know, one or two cycles out. And then there'll be people saying, I live in Canada, so I want Canada coin, or I live in China, I want Canada, China coin. And there'll be this tug of war between uh, Bitcoin yeah. and them, and what? we'll see what happens. There's always going to be a war uh, between different assets, whether it's the asset cost of the S&P index, or the asset cost of treasury bonds, or the asset cost of commercial real estate, or the asset cost of gold. Yeah, These are just asset cost wars. So I think there'll be a little bit of that crypto asset class. I think you'll have to be a very political. There are two entities that have the power to launch the next set of crypto competitors to Bitcoin. Yeah. One, banks, mega banks. Yeah. You know, national banks, you know, central banks, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley. They, you know, FDIC improved regulated banks. They may be able to issue something and maybe there'll be a digital currency or whatever. And then the other entity will be nation states, governments. But I think that the era of the crypto bros launching the thing in their backyard, their garage, that's over. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that died with the failure of Dogecoin yeah. and FTX and all of the crypto bros. Mm -hmm. they're, they're never going to be able to do again what they did in the last cycle because I think every single nation, national regulator is engaged and you're going to have to have the political power of a, of a certified registered bank or the political power of an agency before you can get into this business. So how unlikely is it that, that people will discover Bitcoin's superiority? I mean, we, we, we have figured it out, but, but like, how likely is it that, quote unquote, for lack of a better word, normies will figure that out before they're a victim of a CBDC, like before, before governments well, and, I mean, and it's inevitable it. but it's gonna it, it's an inevitable development over time yeah so yeah of course it's always hard to predict First the future one percent yeah. then two percent then four yeah. percent then eight over time more and more people mm. will discover it but there's going to be a never-ending fight yeah yeah right there's there, there's going to be a free market competition and and, and and there is an equilibrium. For example, what's the market value of gold, the right value of gold? Right now, it's overvalued. There's too much monetary premium in it. So the question really is, how long will it take for the market to discover that gold shouldn't be worth $2,000 an ounce? It should be worth $200 an ounce. Yeah. Okay. Some amount of time, 10 years. It's happening. Yeah. Right? Now... When gold falls from $2,000 an ounce to $1,000 an ounce, there'll be people that'll say gold's on discount, yeah, gold's yeah, on yeah. sale. When, when gold falls to $200 an ounce, there'll be people saying, oh yeah, gold is oversold. Yeah. And they'll be buying it and it'll stabilize at some level. Now, what about the S&P index? Yeah. Right? That'll demonetize. And then, and then people will say, well, it looks like all these stocks are overvalued. Okay, so if I cut the value of all the stocks in half, you'll have an army of money managers saying, oh, the stocks are oversold. You should sell your Bitcoin and get back into stocks now. You see? Okay, well, 
well, what if we just take it to the extreme and stocks go down by 95% and then Apple is paying a dividend, which is a 22% a year yield? Okay. Is it not possible that someone that has a lot of Bitcoin will then say, maybe I should buy that stock for the income? Or there'll be someone, right? So, yeah, yeah. so you see at some point there, there's a continual dynamic equilibrium in the free market where, where capital is being reallocated from the poorest performing asset to the best performing asset. Things are being demonetized. And then people come along to screw it up. Like, for example, the government will basically say, okay, well, now all of your dividends on Apple stock are going to be tax-free because Apple is a domestic, you know, company and we want to support the national champion. And then someone will say, well, no, theoretically now Apple is worth 22% more than it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. Money will flow that way. So Bitcoin is going to be in a, it's going to be in a dynamic equilibrium relationship with every other asset in the world. And there's going to be a, there's going to be people, they're going to continually create new companies Yeah. and countries are going to create new assets and they're going to, yeah, you know, there's a new currency coming in Venezuela and there's, a, did you read about the currency that they're going to issue back by gold wherever? And yeah. yeah. Everybody's going to come up with this new thing and they'll try it and it may work and it may not work. And ultimately, if there's $900 trillion worth of like wealth right now, it seems to me like a stable point is when Bitcoin is half. When Bitcoin is half of, half of that, half of, right? And then yeah. the economy grows by 5% a year. So yeah. Bitcoin gets to half and then it grows. But there's always going to be a need for you need Apple. You need someone yeah, yeah. needs to, you need companies to make food. Yeah, yeah. You're going to, you're going to want Disney. You're going to, you know, Bitcoin yeah. is not going to entertain your kids at the Disney amusement no. park or make movies for you. So you're going to have companies and, and there's going to be cities and there's going to be nations and they're going to do things you don't like and they're going to do things you do like. And as long as there's nations, there's going to be currencies and there's going to be sovereign debt. No. And as long as there are companies, there's going to be equity and it's going to be corporate debt. And as long as that's the case, there's going to be winners and losers. And, uh, and there's going to be other economic instruments and you're going to allocate some of your money to a house because you want like land on the beach. And maybe your company's going to buy a building. And maybe if, when we don't work in buildings anymore, we're going to build soccer stadiums so people can watch soccer games. Until they don't want to watch soccer games anymore. So there's going to be other assets. There's going to be other financial instruments that represent the assets. There's going to be mortgage-backed securities. They're going to come and go. They're going to be undervalued and overvalued. Bitcoin should aggressively advance up to, to be half of that. Yeah. Because it makes sense that the world would be half liquid energy. And the other half would be, if you think about this, this is, this is uh, the universe at work, and this is energy-matter duality, right? Yeah. Matter is energy, yeah, yeah. energy is matter, right? And, and we're, contra- we're, you know, we can't destroy it, but we can transform it. Yeah. Steel or copper or light or fire or heat, they're all just manifestations of energy. Yeah. So how much of the universe should be material 
and how much yeah. of the universe should be pure energy. Yeah. Right. And like, this is material and this is material yeah, and your glasses yeah. are material and you are material. <laughs> yeah. So some of the, it's okay. And you need food <laughs> yeah, yeah. and water. So it's okay for half of everything to be materialized assets. And the other half will be just pure energy because pure energy, of course, has the most optionality, the most immortality is the most efficient. But at some point, you know, yeah. ashes to ashes, dust to dust, you came into this world. You're a very inefficient energy container, <laughs> but give yourself pleasure yeah. and credit. Yeah. And then eventually you will leave, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, you'll go from being pure energy to being materialized energy to being pure energy again. Yeah, yeah. And that's okay with a certain frequency. And Bitcoin has its place. And right now, clearly, it's just a small part of the energy balance of the civilization. It's destined to reach the right equilibrium. Yeah. And then it will adjust based upon technical and political and and work, you know, competitive factors. So so can you calculate? I, I know I tried to do this in the Everything Divided book. Can you calculate the the kilo price of a Bitcoin via E equals MC squared? So if you take all the energy that has been sacrificed for mining over over Bitcoin's existence, and you calculate how many joules that is and uh and you run it through E equals MC squared, and you get the kilo price of Bitcoin. I, I mean, you could do any kind of those calculations. Well, I wouldn't do it that way because... <laughs> right. It's just a thought experiment. Because you would be looking back at the amount of energy it took to create the network, but you wouldn't be looking forward at the value of the network. Yeah. So for example... There was a certain amount of energy it took to invent a clock. John Harrison did it. When he invented the clock, we discovered longitude on the ocean. When we discovered longitude on the ocean, we developed, we figured out how to navigate the ocean. We made possible the entire mercantile em empire of the British Empire. Mm. The cost of inventing the clock is not the same as the value of the empire. No, no. Right? And um, <laughs> if I hypothetically created a fusion reactor and it was about this big and it would operate an entire city for a thousand years off of eight ounces of water. Yeah. The cost to create the fusion reactor is not the same as the value of the fusion reactor. The value derived from it. Huh? So the value of Bitcoin looking forward is half of humanity. So right? it's like whatever the human race is going to be, the cost to get here so, is just a small fraction, right? The, it's the amount of energy to start the fire is not the benefit of fire for 8 billion people for the next 100,000 years, you see. There's a difference between the one and the other. So everything divided by 21 million is wrong. It's half of that. <laughs> well, it, de it depends. You could actually make the argument that that the the money, the the value of all the money is equivalent to the to value, value of everything of, else. Of all the stuff and the and service. so of everything, all the products and services and property, <laughs> right, has to map to the money, yeah, right? Yeah. There's, there's an interesting question there, right? On, 
it, it depends <laughs> upon how you how you view it. I guess uh, we could go into. Uh, you would probably need another podcast to discuss what I'd portion have another one of the energy of one. the civilization <laughs> should be liquid in the form of the monetary network, yeah. and it would be. It would be all of the energy that we need to be able to move at high frequency through space and all the energy we want to move through time. Sounds like a lot. It's, it's <laughs> a large number. The show is also sponsored by BitcoinBook.shop, the Bitcoin-only bookstore by Consensus Network. Consensus specializes in translations of Bitcoin books and also publishes original titles in English and many other languages. Check out bitcoinbook.shop for all your Bitcoin book needs. Consensus is always looking for new contributors, whether you have a book you want to publish, you want to help translate books into your native language, or you have some other way you want to get involved. So if you want to help spread the Bitcoin message, reach out to Consensus Network by Twitter or email. Details are in the show notes. I think that's a great place to stop on. I know Knut has one last question. So speaking of that, how will you celebrate Infinity Day 2023? Like, <laughs> what's your plan? I haven't decided yet. So I we'll have I'll to think a, of some. I, I guess I'll throw a party with whichever Bitcoiners I'm in the vicinity of at the time. That sounds like a great idea. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the pod. This has been great. Uh, love your thoughts and keep doing what you're doing. Keep rocking. Thanks for having me.